welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined by the ever-fabulous Mr. Steve Lowry. How are you, Steve? I am doing great. Glad to be here, man. It is good to have you, as always. I think we've uh, we've hosted quite a few of these things together, haven't we now, Steve? I uh, was just telling, no kidding, 15 minutes ago, some of my friends that I'm staying with this summer from undergrad, I was talking about the podcast and said, yeah, you know, it's been going a few months and I had to pause and think, no, we've been going almost a year now. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Let me, I'll, I'll get back to you on the exact number once I take a look at Spotify later, but we've been co-host on this a number of times. It's, it's been great. Yeah. October will be a year. Uh, I think right around this time, a year ago, I was hatching this cockamamie scheme uh, and here we are 20 some odd episodes in, and it's just been, we were talking about this with Jeff on his episode, how just humbling it is to have been able to talk with so many people. So thanks for being along for the ride, Steve. It's been, it's been good to have you, man. You, I'll follow you anywhere. Our fearless leader. <laughs> You're too kind. You're too kind. Well, where our path leads us today, uh, is intersecting with a fabulous attorney out in Limestone County. You've heard us talk about her numerous times on this podcast. Uh, all good things, definitely uh, are, are high praise uh, reserved for Kathleen Coffey, who is a recent, as of, I believe, spring or winter or spring 2021, uh, Baylor grad. Uh, and so she's here to talk with us today about kind of making that transition from Baylor law, especially from practice court uh, into actual practice. So Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, we, we definitely wanted to, I, we were, we were making this joke with, uh, Jeff on his episode that we shouted y'all out enough that it was like, okay, well, let's just get him on. Right. It's almost the best evidence, uh, kind of a thing where it's like, are you going to keep talking about him and just produce the guests? So, uh, thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, we, we are really, like I said, excited to talk with you kind of about the transition that you made from Baylor Law, because that's a, a spot most of us are, you know, in and a lot of us are getting close, uh, close to being done. Um, so we want to talk with you about that in just a minute. But first, you know, like with all our guests, we would really love to hear your story, uh, maybe how you got into law school um, and what the path has looked like, you know, kind of your decision to go to law school uh, up until where you are now or any of you know anything before that if you want to share with us sure well i don't have a traditional path like a lot of y'all do who have gone straight through undergrad and straight into law school i graduated from baylor undergrad in 2009 with a degree in journalism and i knew i wanted to go to law school but i had a family and was a mom and did public relations for 10 years and then, uh, I guess back in 2018, I started to get the itch to go back to law school. I was a single mom with three kids, took the LSAT, and was thrilled to go to Baylor Law because it was my it was my dream school uh, from the beginning. So it was a ten years waiting to get there, and I think that made me appreciate the struggle through it just a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth the wait. Um, that's really cool. So, you, I mean, you you graduated in journalism. You're doing uh, public relations, that kind of thing. I I too graduated from a journalism school. My degree was in advertising. 
what kinds of skills do you think translated from that undergrad uh, into your law school experience? Being able to write well and write quickly, definitely, especially for um, doing quick drafts, quick motions. And then also being able to apply public relations to help different types of people communicate and find a common language where you're talking to both a judge and a jury and they both have very different frames of reference and knowledge bases, but be able to communicate a story to both of them effectively and clearly. Yeah. I've, I've found that too, kind of that knowing your audience thing, right? I feel like that got drilled into me in my undergrad. It's like, know your audience, know your audience. Who are you talking to uh, is going to depend on how you talk to them. So very cool. Um, and then tell us a little bit about your time at Baylor Law. Did you know coming into law school that you wanted to be a prosecutor or uh, was that something you found along the way? I'd love to, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your time at Baylor Law. I knew from the beginning I wanted to do criminal law, which is hilarious because when I was an undergrad, I wanted to do any kind of law except criminal law. Mm. But as I got older, I started appreciating um, criminal justice process and just realizing that there are wrongs in the world and you know there, there need to be people who are willing to try to do the right thing and solve problems and help the community and as long as there's evil in the world there need to be people who can fight it and I may not be the smartest and brightest and best but I know that I can do something for my little part of it. Totally. And that's really interesting that you, you were not, I mean, so against criminal law, but you knew in a way that you didn't want to practice criminal law. And then you kind of switched. Was that just like you say, a gradual process or was there kind of a, uh, uh, you know, you talk about fighting evil makes me think about superheroes. Was there like an inciting event that, that happened to make you uh, change your mind to make that switch? I think just, you know, living life and having friends go through different things and, you know, have crimes committed against them and realizing that no matter what, life can be messy. And when I was younger, criminal law seemed a little bit dramatic and, I don't know, just kind of messy. And, I, you know, I didn't want to have to deal with that. I wanted something cleaner. And then as I got older, I kind of appreciated that, you know, People can be messy and their stories can be hard, but they still need somebody on their side. Um, and it's, it's fun to be part of that process, whether I'm working with a victim or a defendant even sometimes. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, you know, and I think that that's a message that we get a lot uh, here at Baylor Laws, storytelling and engaging in people's stories. And yeah, it gets messy. It's not, it's not always a happily ever after. There's not always a fairy godmother, you know, who shows up just in time for the ball, right? And so I, I know a lot of us who are interested in criminal law feel like because we can do something, we need to do something. Um, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, well, what was that like? Because I, I, we have a lot of listeners, myself included, uh, you know, who have families and are in law school now. What was that like uh, juggling the pressures of, of law school with, with a family? And how did you, you know, keep moving forward and keep your eyes on the prize? I think just 
for those of us who already have families, you have to learn to accept that not everything is going to be perfect. You may not have, you, you may not be the room mom at school and you're, you may not have quite as much time to put into your schoolwork either and that that's okay because we're in a different place in life and we just do the best we can with what we've got and the time we've got. I'm very blessed to have my parents helping me and they've been a huge help uh, picking up kids, helping with schoolwork, uh, keeping them at night when I was doing mock trial advocacy in school and now when I'm staying late to do trials. So it's definitely not easy, but it can be done and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us, I mean, I, you know, people are always asking, how do you do it? You know, like, I, I gotta tell you, it's my wife, you know, she's the rock star. She's the, she's the trooper. She gets it just handled. You know, I couldn't be doing this. And I mean, I can't even imagine what that'd be like doing it as a single parent, let alone being a single mom and, you know, everything that, that comes along with that. But it sounds like you've got a really great support network uh, and, and relying on that network. Um, now, I think that that's a message we've heard a lot here too, in other contexts on this podcast is, you know, relying on your network and not offloading your problems on anybody. That's not what we're saying, but relying on other people, uh, you know, to help you out and, and, and being okay with that. Um, how have you seen that as beneficial now that you've moved into practice? Well, you know, uh, I'm really lucky because I typically have schedules on a docket once a month and not even that many actually go to trial. I'm not one of those people that has trials every week or multiple trials a week, but at the same time, when I'm in trial, you don't get to always set the schedule. You can't make the jury come back. You can't make the judge take a lunch break or end when you want to. Mm -hmm. So having some flexibility and people who can handle childcare has been really important for me because I know that I may get stuck there uh, late sometimes. And so it's, it's important to have a network because you're not always out by five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I spoke with Professor Alpert, like early on, I think in my very first quarter, I was talking with him about those sorts of things too. You know, I'm, I've got two kids already and we're, you know, family is really important to me, that kind of thing. And he was really impressing upon me how criminal law, especially being a prosecutor, you know, he was like, I mean, you can make it to the T-ball games, right? You, you, the schedule is a lot more flexible. You're not expected to put in 90 hours a week on the regular, like, like in a big law firm. Did, did you, was that part of your calculus as you were trying to decide Absolutely. which, yeah, trying to decide what <laughs> career that, path? That was, was a huge, um, a huge deal for me because I wanted to be able to make it to some of my kids' sporting events. I wanted to be free on the weekends. Some of the law firms who say, yeah, we have great office culture. We all have donuts on Saturday mornings. Well, that's not what I want. I want to be hanging out with my kids on Saturday mornings. So, you know, every office is a little bit different, but I think most prosecutors are working eight to five type jobs and depending on who your boss is, you know, there may be some flexibility there. And you've also got the normal holidays that you're not expected to work, bank holidays. So that, you know, not being expected to work more than 40 hours a week is huge in our field. 
Yeah. When he said that to me, I was like, okay, sold. Because I was working, you know, like I said, in the, in the advertising industry. And I'm not going to pretend. I mean, I wasn't working on Madison Avenue. I'm sure, you know, those sorts of ad agencies get really, really crazy. But, you know, the, with a big law, you just hear about how insane those hours are. I mean, they're making great money, but, you know, it's it's really crazy. And he was like, no, the balance, I mean, you can have a life, you can have a family life. And I was like, okay, so that's it. <laughs> um, well, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, again, while you were at Baylor, some of the classes that you took that were really interesting, um, maybe some of your involvement, you mentioned briefly about mock trial, just to kind of you know hear about the things you were involved with at Baylor that helped set you up now to be where you are uh, prosecuting misdemeanors. Baylor's advocacy program, being able to do mock trial teams was definitely probably the single biggest help for me because I enjoy writing, I don't enjoy speaking. So being able to hear from different judges who could critique me and explain body language, how to stand in the courtroom, all those different things, and then having a variety of coaches working with me because you'll find different coaches they may tell you things that are different and you start kind of developing a sense of what works for different people because judges are different too and being able to kind of cater to what somebody else is wanting and being aware of little things like body language pushing in chairs can they hear you are you being clear as you develop your story in that trial. Um, so trial advocacy is huge at Baylor. I'm really glad I did that. That was the biggest thing. But then also PC, writing a lot. I was a brief writer for a team. That was also a huge help. As far as classes go, anything Alpert teaches was the best practical experience going into criminal law. But I've found myself you know, even going back to things I learned in Crim Law and Crim Pro from SARE that I wasn't sure I'd use at the time that have come into play in daily practice. So really, I think it's the whole kit and caboodle of everything that I went through at Baylor that's kind of prepared me to do my job. I did not take a lot of other outside classes, but... Um, I focused on the criminal classes, immigration law, family law, those overlap. But other than that, I focused on the criminal classes and advocacy. Very cool. Did you do the um, professional track or special distinction for criminal law? Yes, I did the criminal special distinction. Okay. And you did you find that uh, it was easy to fit all those classes in or did you have to do a little bit of you know, Jenga to get everything to fit together? I did a lot of Jenga, <laughs> a lot. I had my Excel spreadsheet, and especially because I took PC early and graduated a little bit early, mm -hmm. it's important to talk to professors, find out when classes you want are offered, what quarter they're going to be offered, so you can plan out what classes you want to take and when you're going to do it, what requires that extra effort, because the way our schedule is at Baylor with more required classes, you do have to plan in order to get in what you want to take for those electives because there's not, not as much wiggle room as you might think. Hmm. 
was there anything that you wanted to take that you didn't get to like any criminal classes particularly or did you spreadsheet out everything well enough that you you got what you wanted i didn't get to take white collar crime that was a spring only class and i graduated early so i didn't didn't get to do it but other than that i got everything in that i really wanted to take okay yeah i i think i'm going to be in the same boat uh for the same reason uh and I, we can talk a little bit about spring and summer pc in a second but uh yeah when it was happening this last spring and i was in the throes of that first quarter of pc it was hard not to try to look over the hedge sometimes you know i was talking to ethan and he'd be like oh yeah we're talking about this that and the other thing in white collar crime and i'm like that's great i feel like my soul is being ground into a fine powder right now <laughs> I mean, but yeah yeah well that's good that's good to hear especially you know again for somebody like me who's kind of following the same path it's good to know that you can still get that special distinction done uh even if you do pc uh, a little bit early so um let's talk about practice court then for a minute um so you you took it in the spring and summer and you had kind of a smaller class comparatively right yes i had a much smaller class in the spring and summer pc session instead of doing it with a huge fall winter class yeah how did you like that i liked it a lot more i got called on more which meant i was trying harder than if i would have been one in a hundred because mm -hmm. when you're one in 30 to 35 you're gonna get called on frequently <laughs> and uh I, th I think you get more out of the experience in a smaller class I know it was easier to get people to help be my witnesses for those mini trials. So I was glad I did it when I did it. Yeah, I'm, I have found the same thing. I, I got called on twice in Professor Wren's class. I got called on like one and a half times in Professor Counselor's class because he'll like officially call on you. Then sometimes he'll just sling one your way, you know, kind of a thing. Um, I've already gotten called on in Professor Fraley's PC3 class. She's moving at a pretty quick pace through us. So I feel like it's going to be about every other week uh, in her <laughs> class that we're going to get called on, um, which, which is good. One thing that I'm finding, and I wanted to ask you how you felt about this. I mean, PC2 is evidence, right? And like half, maybe even better than half of what we talk about in that class, either are criminal cases that professor counselor has us read or the applications of the rules of evidence to criminal law, which I think is really cool. But PC one is pretrial practice and procedure. And PC three is I think trial and post-trial practice and procedure, most of which is civil focused. So what I find, I don't, I'm not a guy who's like, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Right. I, I, I don't think that's a very helpful mindset to go about um but i find myself being like man like i don't know when i'm going to use a lot of this practically although i'm interested in learning it did you feel the same way and was there anything from those classes specifically pc1 and pc3 that either surprised you that you use a lot or even principles from those uh disciplines that you find yourself using a lot in practice now absolutely i um the job I'm in, I'm in a small office, so I have a broader scope of responsibilities. And one of the things I do 
is asset forfeitures. And that ends up being a civil process where I'm filing a petition, doing discovery, feels a lot like a regular civil case. Hmm. And so for those of those in, who know they want to do criminal law, but they're in those civil classes or learning those civil things, pay attention because you may see it in the future. And I'm, I'm glad I went through PC because it hasn't been wasted. And even being able to look at a defendant's family case that's pending, being able to look at the docket, see the judgment and understand what's going on. Are they paying a normal amount of child support or why might it be different? Some of those other things come into play more often than I expected they would. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I, I mean, I think I worked with you on maybe one asset forfeiture. It was like a, like a sub part of something else we were working on. And I remember you telling me that, that there was this kind of civil component, but I hadn't really put two and two together about that until you just said it. How often does that kind of thing come up? I mean, obviously you're working on a vast array of different kinds of cases, but how often do you have to, you know, put those civil, uh, civil muscles to work, I guess is what I'll say. I've only done a few of those since I started. And one of them, we did get a default judgment. So, you know, some of those principles do, do come into play. As far as PC3 goes, knowing who's qualified to be a juror, who's not, mm -hmm. that jury selection process, voir dire, that is just bread and butter for a prosecutor because I think almost every trial we've had, if not every trial, was won or lost in voir dire. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the most important part of the process it's also the part of the process that I don't enjoy <laughs> personally, but I've come to recognize its importance and I'm really glad I got that foundation. Um, being forced to do it in PC3, I think was the hardest thing I did at Baylor, but, wow. or at least, at least the thing I enjoyed the least. The Vordire process. Um, <laughs> That's really interesting. It's funny that you say that. I think you used almost verbatim the same words Jeff did when he talked about. I mean, I think he said, I think what, well, I think what he said was it's the thing I like the most and the thing I like the least. Uh, you talked about in terms of importance and liking it the least, but that's, <laughs> that's okay. Um, what's interesting is now as of this summer quarter, we have, I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've got a Vordire boot camp. Uh, that Professor Alpert and Ryan Calvert put together for us. So I hate to tell you this, but it's in lieu of the regular Vordire exercises. So we get to do. <laughs> oh man! I, know, I shouldn't gloat about that too much. I'm just really excited about it. <laughs> You're gonna have to start all over and go back. <laughs> I would have just... loved to have gone through that before I went through my first real criminal Vordire because that was like pulling teeth. When did you do your first criminal board dire? Was it after I was there? I was there last summer. Um, you know, I remember the case, but I can't remember if it was before or after you were there. It was about- You don't, you don't have to remember in terms of whether I was there or not. I'm just trying, in terms of a timeline. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it would have been, it would have been about right after you were there. What, uh, what was the case about? What kind of a case was it? That case was just, it was a, 
Class C traffic ticket appeal. CDL drivers really care about their number of traffic moving violations. And so it was just a Class C, about as minor as you can get from our perspective of what we end up going to trial on. But for uh, someone who's a professional driver, it can be keeping their career or not. So it was important for him. But because our Justice of the Peace Courts and Limestone are not courts of record, they're allowed to have a Justice of the Peace hear their case and then appeal and have a brand new trial in county court interesting. Um, all over again. That's really interesting uh, procedurally. Hmm. How did you approach Vordire on that case? I mean, that's a very, that's a broad question, but was there anything specific? Because I mean, we've all had traffic tickets, right? And so how, how are you trying to sell that to the jury panel? Well, trying to talk about the importance of, let's face it, everybody has gone a little bit over the speed limit at some point in their life. It may have been one mile over, but everybody has gone over the speed limit. So being able to explain that it is important, it should be enforced, they should have to pay the fine. You know, and even if that means that they've had enough tickets that it could, you know, make them pay more for insurance or suspend their CDL for a certain amount of time, there's so many traffic fatalities. It, mm. you know, we, we don't want to blow off people who blow through the speed limit and then how, how are we going to serve our community if they're causing accidents so focusing on the safety and the fact that it actually is important even though everybody's committed that particular crime yeah i i feel like that is probably the case in a lot of your um in a lot of your misdemeanors i remember you and i well you were trying it i was assisting as an intern <laughs> Uh, but we were working together on this BWI case is boating while intoxicated. And I remember like, I, I mean, I don't drink, but it, it's like, even in coming into that, I was like, wow, like a guy drinking on the lake, you know, while he's fishing kind of a thing. It was, it was like that, that there, but for the grace of God, go, I kind of mentality seemed to come in. Do you feel like you have to fight against that a lot or you have to maybe not fight against, but like learn how to wield uh a good answer to that that question a lot like well we all speed you know a lot of people drink a lot of people do this that and the other thing these people just happen to get a ticket for it or they got you know charged for it i mean how, how do you deal with that on the regular absolutely jeff did the for dire for that voting while intoxicated and he asked the jury to talk about why do you think that might be a law? Why have they chosen to make that a law? And from the jurors themselves brought up those ideas of, well, if you run out of gas on a lake because you're not paying attention, Lake Limestone is huge. You're not swimming to shore. You're drowning mm. uh, or waiting for help. And if you're intoxicated and fall overboard. So getting the jurors to explain to the whole room why something is dangerous even though chances are maybe in college or in high school even you've been on a boat with somebody who was drinking more than they should 
having the jurors explain it to each other, I think is the best tool to get all of them on the same page to agree that it is something that's important and slow down and realize, you know, just be, it doesn't mean somebody's evil or a bad person because they commit right. a crime just means let's get them on probation and help them realize that if they did it again, it could harm someone or themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially for those like kind of more common crimes. It's like, well, at some point your actions have consequences, you know, and we have to, we have to have some level of decorum, but yeah, helping, like you say, the jurors kind of come to those realizations themselves, come to those answers themselves. That that's an interesting skill. Uh, and you bring up a good point about, you know, I mean, we, you watched, and I, I'm remembering that Vord Iron now because I was watching it too, kind of watching somebody who's been doing this for a while and taking cues from them. As you have been in practice now, what, about 18 months coming on two years? Is that about it? Well, I interned before I started, but okay. I just hit my one-year anniversary last month of actually oh. working and being paid. Right. Okay. Yeah. Passing the bar and having your, you know, being a, an actual lawyer. So where do you feel like, and because, and you talked about this quite a bit, you know, earlier, Baylor's emphasis on being trial ready and trial advocacy, you know, where do you, do you feel like um, that gave you a good jumping off point or that, you know, you can kind of say, okay, well, I got this much training, but then actually having real world experience kind of filled in the gaps. I mean, what do you think is kind of the interplay between the experience you got at Baylor versus, you know, uh, like practical mentoring and hands-on experience you've had in the actual office? Well, you can't beat hands-on mentoring. And I'm really just so glad to be in an office where they're willing to take the time with interns and new hires to explain the process and not just do it for me, but tell me and teach me how to do it. I did not feel that I had that big of a leap to hit the ground running coming from mm -hmm. Baylor because of that advocacy. And then also um, criminal law boot camp, getting that overview of how different people do each part and then I got that again at baby prosecutor school which is a slightly more in-depth week-long criminal boot camp where I was able to plug in some more things and really by the time you get through that and have some hands-on work with a trial partner because we do our trials with a partner which also I'm not on my own mm -hmm. I haven't felt in over my head or that I was drowning at any point. I felt ready, which I think is one of the big differences between um, Baylor and some of the other schools where you may know a lot, but can you put it into practice? And Baylor, I felt, helped me be able to put it into practice. And I, you know, I mean, we're obviously, we're all Baylor fans here, or at least we're, you know, of, of the Baylor subscription so i i don't feel like we're poo-pooing anybody else too much when i ask you know at baby prosecutor school did you feel like there was a difference like a palpable difference you could feel in people's readiness uh like you sitting there having gone through pc having 
been scrutinized on your use of the rules of evidence of, you know, even trying, you know, a couple mini trials and a big trial beforehand. Was there a difference between your level of preparedness at that stage compared to, you know, other people that were sitting at the table with you? There was, um, not that they wouldn't be better to do something else. Um, they may be better at writing or other things than I was, but as far as knowing those rules of evidence, how to lay predicate, and then just being comfortable in the courtroom, which is, I think, half the battle, honestly, mm -hmm. is just being able to go in a courtroom and sit down at council table and not have your heart beat faster than normal. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I do yeah. think that's yeah. a huge part of it. But at baby prosecutor school, it was kind of as if I got to reabsorb things that I'd learned really quickly at boot camp mm. you know, for a you know, really quick two-day period. And I was able to slow down and absorb it, but it was all familiar. And I definitely got the sense that there were some people it wasn't as familiar to. So I, I did feel like Baylor was, has upped its criminal law game and is, I appreciate that they have put a focus on preparing people to be criminal prosecutors and defense attorneys um, and not just focused on civil litigation. Yeah. Well, like we were talking about, I mean, even the addition of something like a criminal voir dire element to the very well-established storied PC curriculum. I mean, that's a big deal, right? I mean, that's that's a huge step. Uh, and you were talking earlier about, you know, classes Professor Alpert teaches. Uh, did you get to take his Texas criminal practice and procedure class? I did. And that by far was the class that I uh, you know, was able to apply and put into practical life and practical application and all of the things that I learned in his class, I use probably on a monthly basis at least once. Wow. Um, yeah. When did you, when did you get to take that? At what point um, was it like, was it before PC or did you take it after PC? I took it after PC um, in the fall after I took PC. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's when I'm planning on taking it too. So do you feel like, that having that class closer in proximity to when you were actually going out to practice, you think those things were a little bit fresher on your mind and maybe they would have been otherwise? Well, I'm not sure I should tell you this since you're going into PC3. I <laughs> wished I'd had it before. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, because I did do the criminal law track during PC3 with a criminal-based... Uh, mini trial and then also the criminal trial in addition to doing a civil trial mm -hmm. and I didn't I I literally I ordered one of those TDCAA DWI intoxication books and read it cover to cover multiple times because I didn't know anything about how to try a DWI case Wow! <clears throat> so I wish I'd had that class before I was having to put that together myself. But that said, I did get the information after PC and I got it before I started doing 
criminal practice in real, the real world. So, um, yeah, I, I'm glad I got to take it for sure. Just cool. wish I had it sooner. Yeah. As people will discover in PC, any advantage you can get <laughs> to help save yourself a little bit of stress, you know, that goes a long, long way PC. So that, that makes a lot of sense. It does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you this too, in your, uh, mock trial, uh, on your mock trial times, did you get to do criminal law problems or were you, did you mostly get civil problems? I didn't do any criminal uh, teams. I did civil, but the skills I think are the same. So, the procedure is a little bit different, but as far as evidence, objections, introducing evidence, working with your witnesses, putting together a case, it's really this game's skill set. So I, I don't regret it too much. I, I wish I had done a criminal law problem at some point, but the civil ones were definitely helpful. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of out of your hands, right? Because they put you on a team and, you know, whatever they, I mean, you can say like, I'd rather go, I, I'd rather do a criminal problem, but at the end of the day, it's kind of, you know, where they've got need. Um, right. So they, they know if you're interested in criminal law, but I think there's more opportunities to do civil. And I was wanting to take whatever opportunities I could get. Yeah. Well, and especially, you know, like you're saying, any, any experience you can get being on your feet, trying a case, trying to put into practice the rules of evidence, however well you may understand them at any given point, you know, before or after PC, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's what you're after, right? You just want more reps. You want more shots on goal so you can, you know, get, get a little bit more comfortable with that. Um, and working with a team, right? I mean, you were talking about trial partners, you know, and kind of learning how to try a case as a team, I think is important too. It is both, both in PC and on advocacy teams. Cause in PC you're working with your partner and being able to work with someone when you're both probably more stressed than you've ever been and learning how to be civil and kind and have character through that grind is something that, you know, I hope everybody takes out of PC because I think PC is as much a character building process as a, as anything else. Yeah. That's funny you said that. It, might, it reminds me of those uh, like Calvin and Hobbes cartoons when his dad, he's always like, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? And his dad's like, it builds character. And it, <laughs> Yeah, PC feels like it's like, why do I have to do it like this? Why do I have to look three different places for the rule about this one writing assignment? It's like, well, it builds character, you know? <laughs> so. It does. It does. Because yeah. I think being being pushed as and to figure out where your limits are, how much can you write and prepare? Uh, how little sleep can you survive? <laughs> it's It's good to know these things. Uh, preferably before you're in the real world in real practice. So I, you know, I, I do think to go into PC looking at it as a whole self endeavor and not just a, I'm going to get the high A or dominate trial and win my big trial. That's not the be all end all. Nobody cares who won their big trial or not in mm -hmm. 15 years.
but what matters is if you, you know, are you, I still text my PC partner who is also in the criminal, she's over in Bosque County, and I ask her questions, she asks me questions. You know, developing those relationships, that's really what's a lot more important. Hmm. Really cool. I mean, that's cool to hear y'all are still in contact. My, my PC partner and I both want to go into prosecution. So it'll be fun to text her in a few years and be like, Hey, how are things in your neck of the woods? But mm -hmm. that's cool. And it's nice to be able to have somebody who you can go out to lunch with. I go out to lunch with her every once in a while because we live close and swap stories because as prosecutors, there's some, you know, nitty gritty, nitty gritty gross things that are fascinating to us but you may not want to call some of your other friends to tell them about you know how you're wrestling through a assault family violence case or something else not everybody is going to have the same uh, stomach to talk about it over lunch so having those prosecutor friends is definitely important yeah again talking about that network but also a network of people who get it you know it's not like why are you telling me about this or like what does that mean or who cares about you know the predicate that you're trying to lay or why that's funny so yeah i i like that a lot um now i got to watch you do i think an opening statement or two i think it was opening statement it might have been closing argument i i can't remember this point but you know, even at the time before I, I had just gotten done with my first year and it was all contracts and property and, you know, the, the real general stuff. I hadn't had any real exposure to advocacy, Baylor law style yet. But even at the time, I remember being like, oh, OK, she it's clear that she took a very measured approach to this opening statement. Let's just say it's opening statement because I don't want to keep having to say it or closing right, right. Sure. opening statement. Uh, and I remember thinking, okay, put, you know, put a mental sticky note there because when it comes time, you're going to have to do it too. Subsequently in uh, the winter quarter, I took the beginning trial advocacy class uh, previously taught by professor Powell and now taught by professor little. And then right after that, I jumped into PC and the first thing, first couple things that we did, you know, were opening statements. And I remember kind of, flipping back in my mind and peeling that sticky note and be like, okay, this is what Kathleen was doing. You know, it was very obvious that she had a process. So I say all that to then ask you, you know, do you find yourself still following that? And I'm going to, I'm going to tangentially relate it to karate kid. It kind of seems like we're, you know, painting fences or washing windows, you know, kind of the Mr. Miyagi style where all of a sudden, that painting a fence is the block you need or the washing the window, you know, is going to get you out of trouble. Do you feel like that process of going through the motions and getting, you know, your opening statement the right way and your closing arguments the right way? Do you feel like that's really translated easily into what you do on a, on a daily basis as a prosecutor now? Yes, it has. <clears throat> Even just being able to think about it from a perspective of, What's my theme? What do I want the jury to take away from this? Or even just if it's something small or a hearing, what do I want my judge to take away from this? Thinking about it through those perspectives, I think there is a method to that madness where it feels like, oh, but why? It would be so, you know, why can't I just wing it? Why do I have to do it this way? 
there is a method to the madness and not that I always follow all the rules all the time, but learning how to work within those is important. Very cool. Yeah, that's good to hear. And, you know, my next thought is like, okay, so there's these big, like, foundational, you know, Baylor style Miyagi-Do kind of things that we have to do. But then what I'm very quickly, what I very quickly have found in PC is, yeah, that's great. But then there's a lot of like, what I would call nittier, grittier rules that you have to keep on hand. How does that play into what you do? Do you have to keep those things just in the back of your mind all the time? Or are you flipping to the rules of procedure? I mean, kind of how do you deal with like the, the more, the finer points of the law uh, in your practice? I'm flipping through that criminal procedure a lot and also looking at resources like TDCAA, DWI case law update, other things, seeing what I don't know. Because no matter how much you know in law, there's always something you don't know. Yeah. And sometimes you don't have time to do it as well as you want. And if it works, you roll with it. But especially because I also do the appeals in Limestone mm. County, we haven't had many yet because of COVID, but I expect more to be hitting. I've only done a couple so far. But having that mindset that I'm going to be dealing with that appeal when it comes in, I'm more aware going through trial or watching other trials of what might be an issue. How am I going to respond to that? Let's go research that real quick so that we make sure we do it right. Because I don't want to write an appeal on that. Right. So, um, so I, th I think all those things come into play. And I am fascinated by the fact that no matter how much I try to learn about those nitty gritty details in that process, I'm never going to have all of it down pat. Every trial is its own little adventure where you don't know what's lurking around the corner. Um, you just sure. get as prepared as you can and jump in. Sure. What, I mean, what strategies or tools in your tool belt did you develop while you were in, in let's just say PC, to handle those kind of unknowns or, you know, to traverse the, the, uh, the uncharted territory that you have to go through? Uh, during your trials? I think having a starting point for resources. I typically check TDCAA first, see if they have a manual on it, see if they have something on their website for it. And then I look at Lexis, ask an intern to look at Lexis. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes even just Google you'd be you know I'm amazed sometimes I'll spin my wheels on Lexus and Westlaw for a little bit and in frustration go to Google and some defense attorney down in Houston has this lovely article that tells me exactly what I need to do to not fall into his trap so uh, you know I, I think you have to be flexible she's uh, she's speaking your language Steve uh, she's talking about just talking about Google. I know I I in I think it was the episode before last that we filmed. Um, I literally referenced what you told me, Kathleen, about how sometimes the best darn answer you can find is going to be 
one of those Houston, Texas defense firm answers they have on their website or, uh, you know, Tyler, Texas defense associates, you know, and they will have the answer to the most bizarre and random question that would come up in a case that I can't find anywhere on Lexus, Westlaw, Bloomberg, anything like that. It's really funny. I was, uh, I, I can't remember if it was after we recorded that episode or not, but I found myself Googling something for a PC question. And I was like, oh, yep. Okay. Kathleen's advice. It, it kicks in in the clutch. You got to check those websites. Because it's like, thank, thank goodness for whoever wrote all, wrote all that stuff down. But if you just need to like, okay, I just need a quick answer on this thing. Come on. And you don't want to muck around in you know Westlaw or whatever for a long time. Yeah, a lot of times they can just kind of give you that quick little, almost Wikipedia style. Like I just need a piece of information. You know they can they can provide that for you. So yes, and disclaimer: after you get that, take it over to Westlaw and make sure there's not a flag. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Always verify, just like with uh, Wikipedia. With but, Wikipedia, yeah, there you go. Uh, I mean. <laughs> There's no need to overcomplicate things either, and sometimes the easiest way is the best way. I found myself. I think it might have been. It must have been this petition that we were writing for um, for a big trial because I found myself doing the same thing. I was like, "Oh, I gotta do all this stuff for this petition. It's gotta include this, that, and the other thing." And I started looking at a few, and I was like, "Oh no, this is this monster in the closet is way less scary than I thought it was." because it just it can just balloon out of proportion right um, so i think what you're saying is having good strategies to you know shine a light in that closet and be like okay this isn't as scary as we think it is you know we can handle this uh one step at a time absolutely very cool um well with the time that we have left i would love to hear a little bit more about just kind of some more stories some some cool uh or interesting things that you've come across in your first year now as a practicing attorney uh obviously you know we know that there are some cases we can't talk about for various reasons but um any stories you'd love to share about you know exciting things that have happened to you really surprising things funny things anything that really hits you uh, on an emotional level just so we can you know kind of get a taste of what it's like being a first year uh prosecutor Man, it's, I was telling one of our interns this past week that so often I open up a file and what you find inside, if you saw it on one of the TV episode of some criminal investigation, you think, oh man, they took a lot of dramatic license here. <laughs> Real life just wouldn't, wouldn't play out this way. But, you know, it just real life can be absolutely hilarious and especially in a smaller county where you may get a text from your DA who says this particular criminal is back out again and he's driving a red Dodge Ram and then later that day you hear a report about a red Dodge Ram and then the next morning you wake up and look at the jail intake and see the name of that person because uh -huh. you know it's a small county so you start seeing the same names and getting familiar with people because the criminal world is small and i mean i think that can be a blessing and a curse but 
I like being in a small county because I feel like that gives me the opportunity to start developing relationships with uh, victims as well as some of the defendants because I don't want to see my DWI first time misdemeanor defendant. I don't want to see them again for DWI. Mm-hmm. And not all of them are going to have an attorney. So being able to, you know, once they've been admonished and signed their waiver to talk to me, going through that plea paperwork with them and hoping that it sticks and that they're able to work out their issues in probation, you know, that that's a neat part of the process that I'm able to do. Uh, last week, I got to try my first felony with Jeff that was a not a first-time DWI. It was a had two prior DWI convictions, which is what made it a felony. Hmm. And you know, there's just a huge jump there. I think it's really sad that those first first couple times weren't enough. Mm-hmm. And you know, it kind of reminded me that my misdemeanors are important, and trying to get people rehabilitated and motivated with enough consequence to get back on the right track like that's important but realize that's not a funny story but <laughs> it doesn't have to be it's, but yeah. it's all far it's all part of the process of um being a prosecutor there's you know that one of the other sides is a lot of times i'll have repeat victims mm-hmm. and beth tobin says you know Defendants know how to pick their victims. They don't pick someone who is well-spoken and well-educated and firm in their beliefs and going to report all the details correctly the first time. They pick people who are picked on and don't stand up for themselves. And they may have addictions or other issues, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be protected. Hmm. And, you know, it's being able to teach them in victim interviews uh, about the cycle of abuse so that the next time they're there, you have a relationship where they'll come back because, you know, most likely they are going to come back. They may be victimized again and I hate it, but I want them to not feel shunned from our office um, no matter what their situation is. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting part of it. And I, I talked a lot in our internship Q&A about how that was the part, I think, that struck me the hardest my time in Limestone County. It's just like the, the human element and really dealing with people where they are and, and coming to understand or at least try to be empathetic you know, with, with where they are. Do you get a lot of folks who are both your victims and your defendants just on any given day? I definitely have have a handful. Uh, we have people who are victims in some cases and defendants in others, and we have to be very careful about how we interview them and making sure that we're not putting them in a situation where they're going to tell us something they shouldn't and not have their defense counsel present. A lot of times we'll utilize our victim advocate to communicate with them so that we're not communicating with them ourselves directly. But, you know, the the cycle of crime 
people don't typically just wake up one day and commit a horrific felony. A lot of times they're a victim themselves, they commit some misdemeanors, and then it, everything escalates. And can I stop that across the board? No. But can I try to help motivate that cycle to stop? Yes. And it doesn't always work. But I think there is definitely hope there. And, you know, we're, we're creating a system that's imperfect. But if someone is wanting to change, whether it's overcoming alcohol addiction or drug addiction or anger issues, you know, probation and there's other classes and courses that can help them get back on the right track. So I think misdemeanors are important just because by the time they start doing those felonies, there may be less, less opportunity for them to get back on that right path. It's a really interesting perspective. And I, one that I, I'm not like, I, anyway, I kind of feel ashamed that I hadn't really thought about it like that before. I mean, it goes back to, I, I think what we were talking about earlier with those like there, but for the grace of God, go I crimes. It's like, well, it, it ties in, right? Because if you as a misdemeanor prosecutor can help people get the message and, and come to their senses, maybe in a lot of ways, or, you know, help them take an exit out of that, that endless cycle, or what can eventually become an endless cycle of victimization and crime, then that's a huge service to the community. And where, you know, a cynical person or on one perspective might be, well, you're just busting people for, you know, having a good time out on the lake, or they were just unlucky. I mean, everybody speeds, you know, whatever. But the point is, like, those are, like you say, you don't wake up and commit the big crimes. Those are kind of the first little steps, uh, you know, into a, a path that somebody may not want to find themselves in. And so taking that seriously and helping almost in a way be an advocate for those people and say, look, you know, this is this has to end here so that they get the message. That, that's a really important function. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you yeah. highlighting that for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, and don't get me wrong, it's I'm not full of grace and mercy for people. I am a big believer in consequences and yeah. punishment is a big part of that system too. But I think I think there's a balance in all of it that you where where you're when you're approaching how to deal with a particular defendant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that, you know, that makes me think too and this is something I I wanted to talk with you more about, you know, I mean, it's like raising kids, right? Like there have to be consequences at some point. Otherwise they don't, it's not that they don't get the message that you're trying to send It's They don't learn the lesson. And in a lot of cases, that bad behavior that needs to stop won't stop. Right. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more. I mean, do you feel like, do you feel like, and how do you feel like being a parent uh, affects the work you do as a prosecutor? Well, I can, I can tell you, I do think it gives me a different perspective. I've also handled several juvenile cases and looking at a 12 year old who is just so full of rebellion mm -hmm. um, and just committing adult sized crimes at 12 and realizing that I've got a daughter that age who is, has not had the so so often especially with juveniles 
you look at their family situation and their own story and there's there's a lot of problems that the juvenile didn't start themselves mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it gives me more compassion there but I also want to protect the other people I don't want them to keep acting out and thinking that that's okay um, that because right now it may get them sent to juvenile detention and juvenile probation but in a couple more years it's going to send them to prison and you know it, it's just it's really sobering to think about especially you know now that I have a kid who's that same age yeah well that's I mean you know that was something that I was talking a little bit about on a previous episode too was how some of those case files because and and you let me let me put it this way not case file but these things that are happening in people's lives that you as a prosecutor are tasked to deal with it can hit a lot closer to home for me because yeah i've got a daughter who's five years old and the case i'm reading is about a five-year-old or you know something happened to this little two-year-old and that can hit a lot closer to home and so kind of an adjacent thought you know adjacent question i wanted to ask you was i mean how do you how do you deal with that? What are some of the coping mechanisms uh, that you employ to help not bring a lot of that home, but also so that you can keep putting one foot in front of the other when you're having to deal with, you know, these, these sorts of cases that are hitting a little bit closer to home for you because you do have a family. Well, my personality is not such that I'm, I'm not a crier. I've talked to some of my coworkers about it. I'm just not, I don't typically take those kinds of things on emotionally, Hmm. but at the same time, I have definitely had some times where I was just kind of pushed and had a lot of emotion about something I was dealing with and having a coworker where I can go in their office and say, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this person you know, did this again, or this victim recounted again, and she doesn't want to prosecute. Having a coworker where you can just go in, vent for five seconds, release that steam with that emotion in a safe place where they're not going to talk about it or think less of you. I think that's really important. Um, Cause I don't want to bring it home. I don't want to stress out my kids and come home in a bad mood. And <clears throat> I think that's why work dynamic, um, can be so important and also having a trial partner who's going through it with you can be so important because I I don't feel alone in what I'm dealing with at work I feel like I've got people who are sharing that burden and I can offload whenever I need to very cool yeah I appreciate you reinforcing that 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 was something that Jeff talked a lot about uh, when we got to sit down with him was you know, just having that, having those relationships and being intentional about building relationships with your coworkers so that when you do need to offload something, it doesn't come off the wrong way, right? That you know that you all have each other's backs. That was something I really loved seeing in Limestone County that Jeff highlighted as well. And you talked about a little bit earlier is, you know, he'll be second chairing for Mrs. Tobin, and then he'll be first chairing something that you're working on. And you're all just trying stuff together, which is, I mean, it seems to me like when you're in the trenches with a group of people that often, you know, that's that that bond is either going to forge itself quickly or it's going to become pretty apparent that 
it's not going to work. But it seems like for y'all, you know, you really have a, uh, you have each other's backs. And so there's, you know, there's a really good uh, safety net there too, when you need it. Absolutely. And I think being able to appreciate each other and each other's strengths and accept the fact that when you're in trial, you're in a bad mood, <laughs> oh, maybe focused. And it may not even be intentional. You may just be focused on the task at hand and you may not hear somebody talking to you and being able to have a already established relationship so that when something happens, you can shrug it off and say, it's not at me they're focused right now. So how can I support them in this moment um, and get, you know, help them out instead of being uh, offended over something silly? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It, it Again, something I saw in Limestone County last summer then echoed, you know, into uh, PC. It was, I, I remember when you were trying something, it's maybe one of the speeding tickets or, or DWI, anyway, something that you were trying I noticed, you know, Jeff was whispering a lot in your ear or he would like hand you a sticky note or something. Then I saw that happen a bunch in PC and I even, you know, did it a couple of times. And I remember at the time being like, man, I wonder if I would like it with somebody who was just whispering in my ear while I'm trying to focus on trying a case. But you come to, once you have that good partnership bond, you come to realize how important that is that you can say, hey, here's a sticky note with the words that you need to say, or don't forget, we wanted to talk about this. Um, and it doesn't come off as, hey, dummy, you forgot this, right? It's, no, I've got your back. And remember, we wanted to get that done. So I appreciate y'all modeling that behavior because it, I mean, it, it, it's true. You get into, you know, trial mode and you're in tunnel vision. I can't even imagine what it's like when you're trying a real case as opposed to a fake PC case that doesn't really have any consequences. <laughs> I don't know. I, th I think I was just as much or maybe even more stressed out for that, <laughs> for, for that uh, fake uh, DWI and intoxication pants letter I did in PC. But I had a lot more time to work on it in PC uh, than I do in the real world sometimes. And I could control my witnesses a little bit better. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh man. Well, we've gotten to cover a lot of ground. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. Steve, did I forget to ask Kathleen anything that we uh, wanted to make sure we brought up with her? I think we hit everything, man. Uh, more than anything, echoing what Chris said, Kathleen, thank you so much for being on the show and being a mentor to Chris and I, you know, uh, it's, it's, I cannot sing the praises of limestone and the attorneys they have working out there enough. Well, I'm, I'm so glad I got to work with y'all as interns. Um, we enjoy our interns and having interns come in that are eager to learn and help out however they can has, you know, that's so important. I can remember, I think it was maybe that BWI trial, you know, Chris just brought me a water bottle. And in that moment, I was like, I needed this. I didn't know I needed it, but I needed this water right now. And, you know, it just, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a great research project to be a huge help. Um, not that y'all, you know, y'all both helped with research and did tons of great work for us, but um, we, we do appreciate our interns. I mean, they're just a integral part of what we do at Limestone and we're glad to be a part of y'all's experience and hopefully give y'all a little bit of a 
desire to do prosecution yourselves, which I think we have. Yeah. Well, a lot more than a little desire, but yeah, I just, again, echo what Steve said, just really appreciate it. I mean, even things like, uh, you know, I was trying to decide whether I was going to do PC in the fall and winter or spring and summer. And I got to have a really good conversation with you about that. And that was it, you know, and I'm so glad that I followed uh, your advice and, and did it in the spring and summer, because it's just going to work out a lot better. So, I mean, having mentors like Jeff and Mrs. Tobin, awesome. But having a mentor like you, who was literally exactly where we are just a few months prior, you know, that was really beneficial. So I'm glad that we got to not only meet you and work with you, but, but uh, benefit from your experience too. So um, any other sound bites or nuggets of wisdom you want to drop on our, our listeners? You know, we, we remind our guests from time to time that things they say may end up on t-shirts or coffee cups. So this is your, this is your chance to get your, uh, you know, your t-shirt quote, uh, put out there, Kathleen. I don't think I've got any t-shirts. <laughs> I I'm, I'm looking forward to y'all being Baylor prosecutors. That that's my only closing comment. Um, it won't be long before y'all are out there yourselves and you'll get your Baylor prosecutor mug. Um, oh yeah. That's the whole reason that we do right, it. That's, that's like the reason is so we can get that mug. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I always bask in the glory. I'm, I'm not even being sarcastic at all. I'm being dead serious. Whenever I would come sit down in your office, Kathleen, to talk with you about a case and see the mug, I'm like, um, I'm like, darn, I really want one of those. I don't. Want well, one. Kathleen, uh, you know, you're much more than just a prosecutor with a mug. You're a great friend. You're a great mentor. We really pre appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, so thanks. Thanks again. We really have enjoyed talking with you. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, folks. Well, we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Until next time, y'all take care. Bye.